Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. 100 episodes ago, you and I started this sort of podcast experiment, and we started it kind of right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And we started it with an article by Mark Anderson, a Silicon Valley technology investor and stuff like that. Today, I want to revisit his article, which was just about the idea of America needing to build. I want to read the exact same paragraph I read, and here it is. Every step of the way, to everyone around us, we should be asking the question, what are you building? What are you building directly or helping other people or teaching other people to build or taking care of people who are building? If the work you're doing isn't either leading to something being built or taking care of people directly, we've failed you. And we need to get you into a position, an occupation, a career where you can contribute to building. There are always outstanding people in even the most broken systems. We need to get all the talent we can on the biggest problems we have and on building the answers to those problems. And Don, this article, we've obviously read it a while ago, was a great article about America needing to build. He kind of talked about how the pandemic and America's relationship to that pan pandemic was a failure of our ability to build. My question to you today is, over the last 100 episodes or nearly two years, has America built anything? Well, you and I have built a library of 100 podcast episodes, so that's maybe the most crowning achievement of all. In a larger sense, though, we've built vaccines, we've produced them, we've manufactured them all in about a year, which is really quite impressive. And when in another year we've had everybody in America, at least, that wants to get this vaccine has gotten it, we've done a lot. I mean, we've he sets huge goals in the piece, and Mr. Andreessen lines out all these ideas that we should do and could do and what the opposition is to be. We're not on those yet growth mindset, but in the short run, we have tamed this pandemic to a certain degree. When you and I started the podcast, life was still so uncertain. People were locked down in their homes. People were sort of terrified uh, to go out. I remember when you just saw the COVID numbers, which were rising every day in the news, when you heard that somebody had COVID, you thought it was a death sentence at that time. We just didn't know enough about it, about what it meant. We were still looking for treatments. Part of this article even talks about, you know, the shortage at that time of masks and PPE gear and ventilators and stuff like that. And part of the critique was that America didn't have the production capacity to basically pivot to start trying to solve the pandemic. So I just remember a really scary time. But as you're saying, I do wonder if Maybe the great achievement is the vaccines. Normally, what could take 10 years or a decade to research and develop got done in, in little more than a year or so. That really is an impressive achievement. And it's the one thing that I wonder a decade from now, two decades from now, we look back and say, this was the moment when we realized that we could control science in a way that we never knew before. Yeah. And you and I both took enough psychology classes to know that our memories are very, very inconsistent in terms of remembering exactly what the situation was like. We're very much, they change over time and it's not an accurate recollection. But what was happening then was you were literally afraid to die, that if anybody got it, they might die. And actually we were tremendously fortunate in the fact that this virus wasn't something that killed half the people that got it. It's only something that killed 1% of people that got it. I, I feel like the numbers were maybe, isn't it like around 800,000 to a million or so that we're at in America in terms of deaths? One of the questions I just sort of had for you was, do you think there's been enough outrage over that large a number. I mean, we haven't lost that sort of number in wars and stuff like that. This is one of the largest kind of killers we've probably seen in American history in terms of a single event sort of thing. Now, the deaths happened over nearly two years, and then they still continue to, to, to happen, although at a lower rate. Do you think we should have been angrier as a society? Did we build up enough rage that our leaders couldn't keep us safe, that uh, what's happened has happened? You're right. And I just looked up the data. Yeah, it's about 900,000 people in America have died. Should we be more upset? Yeah. I mean, the people that have died for the large part are people that could still be alive. And shouldn't we always be upset about that? I mean, many of them were infirm in their health. Some of them were reticent to get the vaccine and that's what led to their death. And maybe we can rationalize that that's why they died. But in general, it's a tremendous tragedy. And 
we don't seem to be reconciling with that. The fact that more people died of COVID than died of Vietnam, World War One, or World War Two. It makes me wonder, like, do you think we should have a, a national memorial in Washington, D.C. to COVID victims? And I, and I say that in, in total seriousness, like, you know, we, we tend to take large events and find some way or some sort of a statue or some sort of a place to go and remember, go to grieve. I don't know. Maybe we're still too close to it. Maybe we're still in the pandemic and therefore it's, it's it hasn't had enough distance yet. But I do wonder if, if we should be thinking about building some sort of monument memorial museum to remember this, to remember kind of the best that America had and maybe also the worst that America had with all of this all together. Oh, this sounds miserable. Do, do we, what do we do here? We do a Mount Rushmore of uh, COVID vaccine deniers and put them there too. The Joe Rogans, the Fox News people, Ron DeSantos, which have personally responsible in my mind to thousands and thousands of deaths. I, I guess so. This sounds awful. I mean, there's no, with the World Wars memorials, then you could say like, yes, we fought against Nazism and we fought against these evildoers, these uh, latter-day Putins. But when we can think about glory and young people fighting here, it's not that at all. It's not that pretty of a picture. It's just, there's no glory. It's just sadness. I actually wrote that down is over the last two years, we built a culture of mask wearing. Mask wearing was never really something that we saw in our nation, maybe over in Asian nations where mask culture was stronger and therefore not maybe as strange to start up. But slowly, it's amazing how you can still see people wearing masks today and it doesn't feel that strange or weird. And at the same time, as we built up a culture of masks, we also, we also built up an anti-culture of masks. And it kind of depended on your geographic area, maybe your socioeconomic level, also what you believed. And we also built up vaccines and also, as you were saying, anti-vaccines and Lots of information on both sides, a kind of a science versus anti-science crowd built up over the last two years. I wonder if there would be an interesting museum where you tell the story of all of this and sort of how America just kind of continued to, to push through it all. I'm not saying that we pushed through it in great glory, but we did kind of keep pushing through, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, that is true. And it would be something to remember and something to look at. I don't want to go to that museum. But then again, I don't like going to truly sad, horrific museums. It's just not a pleasant experience for me. However, what we have built up is a memory for your children and mine that their life will be defined by their adolescence or for my kids, yours a little before that, will be defined by COVID. And what was it like during COVID? The way that our parents talk about the day Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy were died. And where were you and what were you thinking? And what was it like during that time? Or the turmoil of the 60s and the riots? And what was it like during that time? Our kids will be defined by what was it like during COVID? What did you do? What happened? And so that's the biggest thing. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's a history. It's a memory. It's a everything that defined this period of their lives. Do you think, though, that most people will look back because here we are sort of maybe towards the end of it, hopefully. And they'll say, yeah, it really wasn't that big of a deal. And we really did a lot of strange things that really turned out to not be a big deal. Because once again, people will forget the over 900,000 people that died. They'll just think we really got upset about nothing. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think that at least in my, it's only been two years, but I remember spending a lot of time with my wife and children going somewhere every day just to be outside and go on a hike, go on a walk, go anywhere and just be the four of us. And it's almost, a, it's a pleasant memory for me because I didn't have anybody that was really close to me that died from it. I know people that did and I'm sad for their loss, but it was a time of coming together as a family where we didn't have school much to the loss of many people but for you and i we were with our family and doing family things all the time and it's almost a pleasant memory and maybe i'm remembering it all wrong because there certainly was fear and there was i remember the first time we met another family out at a park outside to like we we're breaking the rules and it's it, it was a very scary thing and it turned out to be i don't know i, I don't know how i should remember it how should you remember it that's, that's a great question. As you're saying, like in some ways, my wife and I and, and our immediate family members, nobody died from COVID. So therefore, a lot of our memories are definitely being home. And I definitely can remember feeling 
very anxious for the first couple of months of it all. But I also remember a lot of great family memories of us kind of holing up in our house and uh, trying to teach our young kids school every day. And then we'd usually watch a movie at night. But I would also say our memory is blessed with the fact that my wife and I continue to receive paychecks from our employer and that our life wasn't too taxing being online for those first couple of months because mostly schools were kind of shut down. And therefore, like our memory is going to obviously be very different and very privileged than, than what a lot of other people remember. But I also just think about, you know, the collective memory as societies get further and further away from it. I mean, you think about the 1920s, 1930s and how sort of America sort of reviewed the Civil War with all of those ideas of kind of the lost cause. And, and there was sort of a, a heroic nature that was starting to be seen by those who were fighting in the South. And it's amazing how history can kind of get you know, twisted and, and re and given a new narrative, if you know what I'm saying. And I'll just be curious what the narrative of this is over time. Yeah, well said. It, it'll be interesting. It'll be something we can revisit again and again and again, maybe with some accuracy and without. And I actually would be good to listen to our podcast 10 years from now, the first one and say like, wow, what were we really thinking? Can you see the fear in our voices? I, I kind of want to just ask you this though. Do you think democracy sort of worked at maybe its best during these pandemic years. And I say this with the idea that everybody's been upset for the last two years. You either felt like the government wasn't doing enough and we weren't locking down enough or we weren't social distancing or having enough mask mandates enough and therefore you were upset or you felt like the government had just taken over your life and had locked down way too much and was being way too restrictive on people's freedoms. Everybody was just angry all the time and usually angry at the other side. Depending on where you lived, there were a variety of different sorts of laws and restrictions or no restrictions and laws, depending on kind of, I guess, what political parties were dominating those areas. And yet I think about Michigan, we locked down pretty hard. Again, nobody was really happy with the amount of lockdown, it seemed like, but slowly things changed. And slowly you saw our governor who seemed like she just didn't have the votes anymore to keep up with restrictions. And slowly you saw sports coming back and schools coming back. And then all of a sudden they were still mask wearing. And slowly now we've, we've taken those off. And I guess what I want to say is nobody's been happy this entire time. And yet slowly we've seen a reduction in our policies. And is that maybe a reflection that our democratic leaders listened as best they could and compromised as best they could. And while nobody was happy, maybe it kind of worked. Yeah. And I think you hit upon a good point of the regional differences in that places there, the people got what they wanted for their better or for their worse. And sometimes there was overreach on either side, which was corrected through the democratic process. So in Florida, there were very few restrictions because the people of Florida didn't want that. They suffered probably more deaths as a result, but it was representative of what the people wanted. And that's why the public officials wanted. And I thought of San Francisco where they had tremendous um, restrictions on COVID and masks and canceling school. And then Ultimately, the people on the far left in the school board of San Francisco reached too far and kept the schools closed too long. And the people rose up and recalled three school board members and then opened the schools. It's an interesting way to, the people were heard and their voices did indicate and change the way politicians acted and reacted and legislated. So in many ways, it is a triumph of democracy. Right. And, and if I remember just sort of some of the rules were starting to get strange to understand, like we could have school as long as we were at least saying that we were socially distant, but we still couldn't have sports. Right. And then you saw kind of protests and, and people were gathering saying, let them play. Right. And eventually then we had sports and you, you just kind of realized that maybe our system did work in the best possible way to try to make everybody as happy as you can. But as you know, when you try to make everybody happy, nobody's happy. And yet I'm kind of going with maybe a win for democracy. In fact, one of the other things I wrote down that we built was 
we still had a democratic election uh, last November, and we still actually had two presidential candidates. And even though people were worried if people would come out and vote, uh, we we augmented the system enough to get everybody either to vote in person or by uh, absentee ballot. And I think that we still had a transfer of power. I realized we still had capital riots that were definitely frightening and distressing, but we still had the transfer of power. That to me also should at least be remembered. Yeah, you make two good points there. The first one is that we got what we wanted in terms of democratically. And I think it would be better if all sports were canceled and just school was in person. But that's the opposite of what happened. Sports continued for the most part after an initial break. And then school slowly came back after sports. And that's what the people wanted. It's not what's best. And certainly now it's what's best for all children and not what they did in Europe. But that's what Americans want and they got, and that's a triumph of democracy. And when you talk about the election, um, I mean, hey, yeah, you're right. We had a democratic election facing the harshest and most unforeseen, well, maybe not unforeseen, the most uh, onerous attempts to be anti-democratic and to obstruct the democratic process and by the highest levels of power. And yet, despite that and this pandemic uh, that was ongoing and I guess continues to go on, we did have a democratic election that did result in a transfer of power. However, lack of smoothness it had. Right. But but we pushed through and uh, we'll have to obviously see what future elections bring and stuff like that. But I do think it's worth noting. I also had written down that the NBA finished its season in the bubble. uh, And that brought me a lot of joy watching NBA basketball in October. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's another one that's kind of interesting is I was thinking about this as well, that uh, of the tremendous need for COVID uh, tests at that time and uh, ways to keep things going, we didn't sequester Congress inside a mountain or at Disney World. We took aside <laughs> our best basketball players to put them in a, in, a, in a bubble and have them compete and use all the tests. And I was overjoyed. <laughs> I needed the distraction. I'd already watched the Jordan documentary. I was ready to watch some basketball. And boy, did we watch some basketball. And that was great. And your favorite, the Lakers won. Uh, good. It was amazing. It was amazing. No positive cases in the bubble. Although, you know, speaking of that, do you think Michael Jordan wins the pandemic in terms of because there was nothing else to watch on television, huge numbers of people watched his documentary and kind of got a chance to re-remember just sort of how great he was. And because it was literally 10 hours of just Michael Jordan highlights, he sort of kind of got to have like the biggest statue on Mount Rushmore again of basketball. And I, I you know, you kind of think like that guy sort of won in a way, didn't he? Well, yes, and in a larger sense, it was Disney that won. Disney owns ESPN. Disney had the bubble. Disney had the NBA games there. Disney had the ESPN documentary. And, uh, yeah, Jordan benefited from that as all as well. The loser was Luke Longley. That, that was the starting center. Never mentioned. Never even featured in that documentary. And if you look on YouTube, there's an hour-long Luke Longley special about how they never interviewed him. I don't think they wanted to go to Australia. Somebody made a documentary about a guy who wasn't interviewed for a documentary? Yes, it's really fascinating. It's all about Luke Longley. He's the Australian center who was, the, uh, who was really the center of it all, literally. Well, I guess we built that then, right? We built a documentary about the guy who wasn't in the documentary. Yeah, and it's a fascinating <laughs> watch. You should watch. It's, it's crazy. The only thing I remember about Luke Longley was that he spelled his name L-U-C. He was a big man that knew his role and passed the ball around, played good defense, was pretty athletic, and then his ankle was done, and he was out of the NBA, and he runs a farm in Australia. He's happy there. Hey, good for him. Something else I wrote down in terms of what we also built was I feel like it was the first time that America did try the social experiment of giving away money. Instead of having complex government programs with a tax credit or something that comes on your annual taxes that nobody really tangibly sees, for the first time ever, like our government literally just gave people money. It's been kind of interesting to watch it, right? We've seen all sorts of fascinating things from people that needed the money, were able to keep paying their rent or buy some groceries or support their kids. 
Other people that didn't necessarily need the money just started investing in day trading and stuff like that all day long. Other people just bought like new couches because they didn't need the money. But all of a sudden we started this idea of what happens if the government just gives people money and we're seeing interesting things happening. It also led to President Biden having the child tax credits that were coming every month for the last year. And a lot of people seem to report, hey, it was great to get smaller amounts of money on a monthly basis because they could budget for it. And I do think that should just be remembered that we've now got a sense of what could happen if you went to a universal basic income, for instance, or what if you stop messing around on the taxes uh, again and do an annualized thing and instead just do it regularly. Yeah, that Mr. Andreessen, uh, that was one of the things that struck me when I reread the paper this morning was that he talked about, well, we have no method to give people money. Well, we figured that out pretty quick. That seemed to be an easy fix. And that, yes, we were able to pass this cash out to people. And it's interesting you mentioned couches. I'm sitting downstairs on a new couch that we bought with extra money. And upstairs, we have a, another new couch that we bought with extra money. And so, yeah, it's absolutely what people did. Bought couches from China. I'd be curious now, and I'm sure this has got to be a statistic somewhere, because he does. He says, you know, a lot of people don't even have bank accounts, so we can't do this. I'd be curious how many bank accounts now does the federal government have sort of in its computer system where money can be wired now? Like, I mean, did it grow by tens of millions, you'd think? I know some people were still getting just hard physical checks, but I would be curious how much that grew. That's a good question. I'm sure some economist is doing that in research. Speaking of that, I also wrote down that I feel like over the last two years, we've seen the rise in the crypto economy where people now have more wallets that they can send Bitcoin to each other to or other different alternative coins. And I'm still not sure if the crypto economy is actually helping to bring value. But again, we had a lot of people staying home and day trading and gambling because they had extra money. And it seems like now the rise of crypto and also NFTs. Remember, we talked about Beeple and people buying art online and stuff like that. That that also seems to be now in the zeitgeist before it wasn't, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's something we built to some value to somebody somewhere. It's now the next step is the regulation, which is oncoming. And I think that's the on the mind of all financial regulators around the world. Well, it's interesting because I was just listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about sort of crypto's role in this Ukrainian war and how people are now sending money to the Ukraine directly. Like they're not just giving the money to the Red Cross or a large organization that can help people. They're literally giving money directly to some people using crypto. They're also, though helping the Ukrainian army buy weapons. Like they're sending money to accounts where they can then go buy more tanks or bore more rockets and stuff like that. I'm not here to say that's a good thing, but I would just say it's a new thing. And another way to do it is not necessarily just through crypto, but I've read about people renting Airbnbs and destroyed buildings in Ukraine. Not that they're going to stay there. They just want to send the money directly to the people of Ukraine. And so there are these indirect methods of just getting the money straight to there. One of the most fascinating thing I'm, things that we're seeing over there, and I think this definitely, you know, continued to ramp up over the last two years, is just sort of the meme culture, the Twitterverse, where everything just seems to be out there, but that you can directly target and communicate to individuals so easily now was this morning I just saw that apparently the Ukrainians are, are trying to contact like Russian fighter pilots and they're offering them like a million dollars to bring their plane and themselves to the Ukrainian side. They said that the White House now is giving briefings to TikTok influencers on the goals of the war because of how big their platforms are to communicate with regular people. And I guess you could just say that over the last two years, it seems like we have continued to build out this social media universe of good news, fake news, crazy news, jokes, and it just seems to be even bigger than ever before. Absolutely. I was fascinated by the uh, $500,000 for a helicopter, a million dollars for a plane. It's actually brilliant. It's a lot cheaper than trying to bring those things down to the loss of life or money would cost you to bring these things down. Just have them bring it over. Just give them cash. It's worth it. Yeah, totally. The other thing too, though, inflation. We've built huge inflation now. I mean, I remember one of our episodes, we talked about the idea of MMT, right? Where we just uh, print dollars all we can. It was a new economic theory that you can just keep making up money as long as you control your currency. And the one caveat in the theory of it, though, is that you use inflation as a guide to 
slow down the printing presses. And now we're living in a time of, of inflation here and stuff like that. And we've built it. And now I guess the question is we got to live with it. Yeah, I don't know. Inadvertently, we've built it because the inflation, I mean, there's, if I could lay blame on inflation, it's one, and it's a very interesting one, is that the auto companies canceled all their chip orders, which created this shortage of new cars, which is somehow now made it so the auto companies are more profitable because they can't make enough cars to satisfy demand, created higher prices for used cars. I mean, it's all a weird outflow of a decision made by automakers at the highest levels. And so that drove up prices there. And then all the money that people had from the government, they used to buy stuff, which drove up demand. I mean, there's so many things here that prices are rising because everybody wants this thing or that thing from bikes to cars, to computers, to whatnot. And so it's not all a phenomenon of just flowing money, but it is part of it. And it's interesting, 7.9% inflation from a year ago. That's pretty high, but the gas prices do play a bit of it. And that's, uh, we can blame the Ukrainian invasion on that, I think. Well, one of the critiques by Anderson in his article, and this again comes from two years ago, is that we've failed in terms of manufacturing capability. We've offshored so much manufacturing that we don't even have modernized manufacturing facilities in our country that can build all of those products you mentioned along with the chips. And I guess my question is, here we are two years later, and it still seems like we've got shortages everywhere. And do you do you see that as getting better? Did we did we focus on this enough? Well, the most important thing for us to make on shore was vaccines, and we did that. We're good at that now. Um, we need to make masks. We did that. We can make masks. That's not. I mean, those were the important critical things for preventing spread and preventing deaths. Other things we've also created a few drugs that are really good at dealing with COVID, and those are all things that we've come on shore. And so these are good. The other things are hard to build. Chip man, chip manufacturing takes years to build a, a factory for that. And so yeah, we might be building those, and we are building those, and so are so they are in Taiwan, although there's not the ones that we need for cars. And so, the, but these things take a long time, and it's not just a long time because of government regulation, although that certainly plays a part. These are just hard things to build. Right. And you are seeing like Intel is building a couple different fabrication plants for chips in our country to try to start reversing that. And as you're saying, these are sometimes five to 10 year projects before they become online. And so maybe we just need more time. Also, Anderson talks about like our urban planning issues and that, you know, we have big cities that are kind of tech hubs or hubs of certain industries, and yet they're too expensive to live in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Austin, Texas. You know, we do a poor job with zoning and regulation and we don't have high enough skyscrapers to kind of fit everybody. He critiques education and that we have some of the top universities of the world, and yet they teach just a tiny number of people. That hasn't really been fixed. Transportation, we still haven't seen the drones or the Hyperloop, Don, or the high-speed monorails. We only have Disney World that has a monorail. Uh, any thoughts about any of those things? Did we improve on them? I don't think we improved on them. I think the prices of homes have skyrocketed due to demand. And it's hard to build houses. It's harder than it should be. The number of permits and regulation at the state level is just tremendous. And we need to have less of those and less local regulations and put up more houses quicker. And housing prices have just risen. Um, you and I could not afford to buy the houses we live in now at the prices they are now. And the reason is it's just there's so much demand because people want to move out of small places, get a little space. And that's everywhere. It's not just San Francisco and New York. It is their prices actually fell a bit. It's our prices around here for our homes. And so we need to build more. Well, we also need more workers and people don't want to work and they don't want to be roofers and they don't want to be carpenters. But We desperately need those. So that it's not there's the solution is hard there and the government doesn't make it any easier with zoning laws and everything else uh, in terms of those big projects like, yeah, we're, New York was really good at making subways in uh, 100 years ago when they just threw Irishmen in a pit and let people die as they tunneled through this or that. And that's the vast majority of the subway system. But now there's just so much safety regulation and so forth, which I have a hard time arguing against. But man, it's expensive to make two miles of subway or whatever that was that for that new uh, addition in New York City. I think they've spent like 10 billion on a mile and a half or something like that. That doesn't seem like that's a good idea. Well, isn't that 
the most interesting part of this article is you read this article and you get kind of fired up and you're like, yes, we need to build, 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 build. But then the moment that you and I both say, what is it we should build? We probably have different answers. And as you're saying, all of a sudden regulators come out and all of a sudden trying to find what is it that we all collectively want to build? Very difficult. And you might say, well, let the free market decide it. But as we see here, there's always a combination of the market and regulation that all kind of try to work in tandem. Therefore, do you think this article is just too pie in the sky, too much of just a cheerleader yelling build when do you think we as a nation even know what it is we want built? Well, I think we know what we want to build, but anytime you build, it's somebody else loses. There's a zero sum game here. As you build a big apartment complex for middle-class people in San Francisco, it's going to obstruct somebody's view. And that view is probably going to be held by somebody with lots of power and money that's going to fight against it. And so the whole idea of the article is it's like, they, he talks about things that the inertia required to or overcome resistance or to try and actually build something. Well, the people that are hurt by the building or perceive that they're hurt by the building have tremendous power and their resistance to that is something that really causes a challenge. And then there's the other thing with the uh, safety and accountability and which is the reason for many regulations, which I think are a bit overwrought really impacts us as well. I almost want to feel, and I don't know if this is correct or not, that would you say we have like almost a culture now that's anything that you want to build, I'm just against? Yeah. Or do you think we've always had that culture? And that's, that's nothing new, really. Well, I think as density increased, like if you were, if we go back 150 years ago and the West was Michigan and the Mississippi, and then you, you want to build something in Colorado, go ahead, build it. I don't care. Like no, nobody's out there as far as I'm concerned, because I probably at the time would not care about the native populations or people that are happening in Colorado, do whatever you want out there. That's the way the West grew so quickly with, and so forth. But now those areas are established. There's more stakeholders and those stakeholders don't want to see their property lose value. So they're NIMBY. They're not in my backyard. Don't do this near me. Well, if it's nobody's backyard, who cares? You can build it. But if it is my backyard or if I do have power, then I'm going to resist it. And if you go back to freeways, those were built on the places where people didn't have power. The areas where they put the freeways were likely to be neighborhoods of African-American or Latinx people that didn't have tremendous political power due to racism. And that's why they built the freeway there. And now that more people have power and more people can stand up against building, that has created a greater inhibition to building. Do you think we spent more time squabbling or building over the last two years? Oh, well, I think we did. Like everybody was cheering for the vaccines. Even the people that were anti-vax, I think, didn't even think they're anti-vax until it happened. But they, uh, we cheering for vaccines. We're cheering for masks. That was a win-win when everybody could get a mask or a gown or whatever to prevent things from passing on. But then the other aspect of building infrastructure is people are still against in general. Sometimes you think of building as, I need to see a huge bridge or a building in order to prove that we built something, right? And I guess my one question was, is like, did we maybe replace a bunch of sewer lines or water systems and stuff that's like really critical infrastructure, like, but you never see it, right? You never think about it, but yet really important stuff. Well, it's just like replacing the water heater in your house. When your water heater breaks, it's a kick in the pants because, and then you get a new one, but it's just, you had the same thing you had before. It's just, you have less money now. And so that's what water lines are. That's what sewer lines are. From our perspective, they were working before, then they weren't working, now they're working again. What did I gain? I have what I had before. And so it's not very, uh, not very satisfying. One of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier, but we've now built labor shortages in almost all sectors of the economy. We see the boomers finally retiring in large numbers. We've seen a lot of people just frustrated with their jobs and, and resigning. You and I are in education, of course, and we're seeing lots of people leaving that field. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Is it just a major readjustment and that slowly over time, we're going to see the market react and this will get solved? Well, one of the things we built, the biggest thing, we've, one of the biggest things we built is a culture in a situation where you can work from home. And that may be a long run change. I have a friend that runs a business and he said that people are working as home as good as they were working from, from the office. So we're just going to let them stay home. Like, why would we bring them in? They're doing better at home. 
and they cost less infrastructure to have them at home. So we've really built this work from home environment. We've built this, um, you know, I, you and I have created a system to teach where we don't need paper nearly as much. And every student has a laptop to some degree of helping and whatever we could talk about that. But we've <laughs> built those things. And so that is something that we've created. But well, in that also, the, like, that maybe people are willing to work from home, but they may be, as a result, less willing to go to a place to do a job. Yeah, I, I think this labor issue is going to be very interesting. It is not good when you have thousands of boomers retiring every day, try to fill those jobs quickly. So I think that it's going to be a readjustment for a while. But as you were kind of saying, too, I wonder how much of that is sort of adding into the inflation issue as well. And is that necessarily a bad thing if you have to pay people more coming into a business? I don't think that's necessarily bad. We've been talking over and over again and again about these people that have tremendous student loan debt. Well, now if you want to buy a, hire a finance maker, major from a good school, you're going to have to pay them 100000 There's an article in the Wall Street Journal saying that the people at McKinsey, the people at J.P. Morgan Chase are frustrated that these recent college grads get hired at hundred grand a year. Well, they have a lot of debt. They get paid more. What's wrong with that? That's a good point. I mean, well, as you're saying too, what about the entry-level job? Is that something we built in terms of it being a job with a real wage now? I mean, you drive around, you see your fast food restaurants at 17, 18, sometimes $20 an hour, depending on the, the specific area. You're seeing a real fight to just get any kind of workers. Teenagers obviously are benefiting from this, but could you say that, hey, the pandemic has maybe put a priority on labor in a way that we've never done before, which could ultimately be very beneficial? Yeah, and you and I know that wage, real wage rates have been fairly constant for 25 years and that now they're going to rise. Well, they needed to rise. A long time ago, they need to rise. They still need to rise. And when people look at higher prices, what they, they seem to shake their fists and get angry at politicians. What they should see is more wages going to the workers that are providing them the service they so desire. Right. I mean, I, I, I'll be curious the next time that we hear the minimum wage debate. I'm sure it will come back at some point, but things are so beyond that right now. It just seems like that's a debate that just seems really old fashioned, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, totally antiquated because the minimum wage is the going wage rates much higher than the minimum wage at this point. So what's the point? You mentioned on a podcast episode a while ago that maybe education should take a moment and maybe celebrate what it was able to accomplish last year. And that's probably an unpopular thing, given how a lot of families and educators were impacted by last year's sort of online models, hybrid models, in-person models. There's a lot of things that people didn't like. But one thing that you were talking about is within a couple of months, schools were ready to deliver some kind of instruction online and that teachers did totally flip their curriculums or digitize it all to get it online. And because last year leaves such a bad taste in everybody's mouth, should everybody see that as just who cares? It's still a failure. Or do you think there should be some celebration to all of that? I think privately, we can celebrate the fact that we got something done to whatever degree success we're going to call it. But um, and I think there's a larger celebration needs to be for the students that were able to fight their way through and maintain their math and reading levels and still be successful. But it's not something that the public's going to celebrate because it's kind of like the water heater. You're doing what you were supposed to be doing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you think then, and you and I talked about this just fairly recently, that have we done enough in education to reflect upon what we've learned now that we've got computers everywhere and there's different ways to instruct? Have we done enough in terms of reflecting on that to make any changes in our day-to-day -day world in the classrooms? Change in education, at least at the high school level, from my perspective, happens year to year. You plan out next year's classes based upon what happened this year and the following year. And we've been in such a, I think next year's classes, at least at our school, are likely to be more flexible, have kids that can work from home or on and in person. And we're going to see more of that. And that flexibility is coming slowly in generations. Um, in another way, change happens when other people retire. We talked about that with scientists, but it happens mm -hmm. in education as well. And so we do see it, but it's not going to be the immediate. The immediate change is we're using a whole lot less copy paper. Yeah. 
Well, I, you know, and I think part of reflecting on this article again is you remember that building and growth and change is usually incremental, right? You barely can see it until it's just kind of there and things are happening differently. And in some ways, I wonder by reading this article, you say, well, I don't know if I see a lot that's built. And yet I feel like we're going through a list of things that happened and maybe we just didn't kind of realize it at the time. And slowly people are always sort of changing and adjusting. It's just that it's hard to to kind of point at it. Absolutely. And you don't, people don't oftentimes take the time to really uh, look at it and look back at it. Well, I also just sort of wrote down that it seems like we've built environmental conditions for wildfires. It seems like wildfires are happening more regularly and, and are larger, and that does not necessarily seem good. It seems like climate change continues in terms of uh, warmer and warmer years. I guess maybe not all the information is always great. We built a tremendous demand for electric vehicles and the car, these car companies are racing to create electric vehicles. And that momentum seems to hit a tipping point where they're just going and going and going. So uh, maybe that's the solution. That's true. I would say over the last two years, I've heard more people talking about carbon capture technologies. You're now actually seeing places that are trying to like capture the carbon out of the air and plant it in the ground. You are seeing a lot of technological innovation. Is it happening fast enough to make a difference? I guess we'll, you know, only time will tell. But in some ways you could say that stuff is being built, just maybe not at the large scale that it needs to be. Yeah, but it's on the way. It's, it's something's happening. The last thing I kind of just had written down is uh, your favorite topic, space. It seems like we are building more and more space rockets. Your boy, Elon Musk, there is continuing to innovate. And it looks like we're talking more and more about going back to the moon. There's also a Chinese space station that's now up uh, hovering the Earth. And so now you've got some great nations that all seem to have an interest in, in you know, playing up in space and on the moon. People are jockeying who could be the first person to Mars. And you could just say that, like, that's getting built. Yeah, to whatever extent it is, this thing that we can't see that's floating out there that is marginally valuable to billionaires who want to do space tourism, I guess it's, it's, it's there. I think we found out the things still float. I think the thing that concerns me, though, is I, I saw a report about the new Chinese space station and how basically, like I don't know, it was like a decade or two decades ago, like America basically passed a law saying we are not going to allow the Chinese onto the International Space Station and we will not share technology with them. And so this Chinese space station is just all of the, the, the language and the wording is all in Chinese. It is made for basically Chinese people only. And to me, it's just sort of one of those things that like... Uh, is taking away an opportunity to maybe have collaboration between the great nations, if you know what I'm saying. In fact, one question I have, and I need to, I guess I need to see the report is, how are things on the International Space Station right now where you know you have Russian and American astronauts up there, don't we? And are they all still getting along? Are we still allowed to communicate with them on, on these sorts of projects? Well, there went through a time where the only way to get there was uh, using Russian uh, Soyuz rockets and space capsules that were 50 years old because the space, day, space shuttle stopped flying and we didn't have a replacement. Thank goodness we now have a replacement so we can get our people home. What if the Russians said, no, we are not letting your people come home? I don't know. I imagine they find a way to get along up there. There's not that many of them. I don't know if they're out there <laughs> screaming at each other about Ukraine. That's true. I mean, and you could say, you know what? The, the Russians probably don't even know what's happening. They probably haven't told them. That is, uh, that's also possible. I, I mean, you could say, and this is really only in the last couple of months as this Ukrainian war has continued, but could you say that we've built a totally new set of rules for war in the sense that we've seen Putin now invade the Ukraine and we've seen the rest of the world essentially stand by and watch it happen because one nation, the Ukraine, is not part of NATO. But we've seen the entire world take on totally new weapons of economic sanctions. And we've seen central banks freezing assets, going after oligarchs and their yachts. In some ways, it's it's been interesting to watch as everybody keeps wanting to know how is this going to end. There seems to be no end in sight, but yet the rules are so strange. I was reading a report the other day that America and Russia still have a hotline that is hardwired where their militaries can still communicate to make sure that no Russian and American 
forces come into any accidental contact that might spur further escalation. And yet we still all know that America is going to keep funding and sending weapons into the Ukraine and the Russians are going to keep attacking. Very strange language, don't you think? So, yeah, the new thing is the way that the governments have reacted by freezing financial assets, but then the private industry has doubled down and maybe more more onerous their restrictions on Russia and that they're not dealing with Russia. And so that's really going to put the hurt on Russia economically, not that Putin cares. The Russians have, as you know, put up with tremendous hardship forever, whatever their leaders want to go to war. So there is that is new. The old is that they're basically fighting a war at the 1960s technology. They're not even they're not using these nuclear weapons what they have, but they're shelling and sending in tanks. And it's it's like watching World War II again as they try to take over this thing and people resist. It's awful and tragic, but also very weirdly old. No, you're right. It's uh yeah, it's it's I hope that it somehow can come to some sort of a, an end or a stop, but it just the sad part seems like everybody's dug in on their sides and for Putin, especially, like what options does he have? He could obviously stop, but it doesn't seem like he can save any kind of face or declare a victory. So you just kind of wonder, like, what's the end game at this point? Uh, there was a podcast that I sent you with a Russian author being interviewed. And I'm halfway it, through it, by the way. It ended dark. It ends bad. And I'll spoil it for you. The very end, they're like, what's the best case scenario? The best case scenario is that Putin gets to somewhere where he can declare some sort of victory in Ukraine, and then he dies before he invades other countries, because he will. He's made it crystal clear. He's coming for Poland. He's coming for Finland. He's coming for all the former Soviet republics. And I was like, oh, my God. It was just, that was, that's the best case scenario? This is bad. This guy swims an hour every morning. He's going to live for a while. This, we got a modern-day tyrant on our hands. It's going to be a tremendous problem. Oy. And that's interesting because you could say that while that's happened, we have seen the building of sort of that European coalition of NATO again. You've seen Germany now finally starting to arm up their military. Other countries are doing that. I mean, President Trump for a long time was telling them, Europe, like, you got to start paying your fair share and doing your fair share of the work. And that's actually starting to happen. And so while we're seeing one area over here that is very concerning, as you're talking about with Putin's behavior, you are seeing the countermeasures starting to happen as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. But it wasn't Trump that incentivized it. It was, oh, gosh, I think, well, this podcast interview, I think this Russian author was right. And the other European nations are like, oh, son of a gun. It's, it's been 80 years, but it's happening again. We got to get ready here. They're, you know, the Russians are going to come. Well, and, but could you say then that these European nations clearly didn't read Anderson's article two years ago and the idea of you got to build, right? And once again, you know, and I don't know, I guess here's the thing. Can you ever really be prepared? Because his article is kind of about how like America just wasn't prepared for this pandemic. And you could clearly say, well, boy, Europe is not really prepared for Russian invasions of non-NATO countries, right? And once again, they're, they're flat-footed and now they got to go and buy weapons and get their militaries developed. And therefore, like, could they have been building this sooner? Or is this finally the wake-up call that they need? Well, Europe has all the problems the U.S. has for the most part. I mean, their healthcare system's better. But other than that, they have shrinking population. They don't have enough places for people to live. They're struggling to integrate all these immigrants that came from North Africa. And then in a general, they also have this lack of military preparedness. And so, yeah, they're starting to prepare because they're realizing, like, oh, my gosh. And they have the fear that we have not had, couldn't even comprehend. I can't ever even think of the idea that a nation invades our nation. But that's, that's a reality that Germany and Poland should be are thinking about and actually contemplating. That is very true. We've, we have been blessed to kind of live on our sort of, you know, Western Hemisphere island and stuff like that and the huge country that we have. And it really is hard to to think about that and the other nations they've they've seen it in their history that's for sure in europe and maybe that has to be contemplated i mean it's interesting because remember when we read the churchill biography there was a section there where churchill and and the military planners were were wondering should they tell the citizens of london and england to basically fight in the streets if, they, if there was a German invasion. And there's this whole debate about, you know, do you train people or do you tell people how to fight or do you just take lock up in the doors and just do your best? 
And yet you're seeing in Ukraine, literally regular people now ready to fight in the streets. And this stuff does happen. Absolutely. And that is what they're doing in Ukraine. They're fighting tooth and nail. They're, they're, it's not been easy. And they're just keeping going. And people are coming back to Ukraine to fight. I mean, the stories that I've read of the borders in, with Poland, where you have people leaving, mostly elderly and children coming out. And then there are people heading back in to go to fight these bartenders from Scotland or wherever they're going back in. And it's just, it's gotta be just insanity. It's just so wild. And yet I think, I think if you ask Ukrainians, many of them saw it coming for a while because Russia has been chomping away at Ukraine for a while through Crimea and through other things. And I, they weren't building up as fast as they'd like to. They asked for a lot more military aid and initially Trump held back and, I think if we go back, we put more things there, but they're just girding for the long run. And by the way, watching their infrastructure being destroyed. If Russia does win this thing, they're going to win a smoking crater, which is, I mean, the pipes need to be fixed. The, there's a whole infrastructure needs to be rebuilt and Russia's not going to have the money to do it. It's just overall going to be absolutely tragic, even if either side wins. Well, it's a brave new world, Don. And I think that's kind of the thing is uh, things are always changing and it looks like some things have been built, maybe not enough. And I guess maybe it's always the eye of the beholder that decides what to build. And uh, it's just, it's hard to build things. Isn't that the lesson, I guess? Very hard. Well, Don, I guess I was going to ask you one final question. Any predictions as to maybe what gets built over the next two years? I think we build a better energy grid with charging infrastructure that is less central and more local. And then people's electric vehicles serve to moderate and create local networks for electricity and the distribution of that. It's going to be spurred by battery powered cars, but the battery powered cars can work and in concert with the houses to create a different way electric systems work. That seems like a, a very reasonable goal, especially something that could have incremental, you know, progress between both public private partnership and stuff like that. See, a part of me was going to say that I wonder if we continue to build out our fossil fuel infrastructure and in that we're now realizing once again, that we're going to have to be the world's supplier of, of oil and natural gas, and we're going to have to ramp that up. Well, that'll happen naturally because these high oil prices are creating an incentive for all these small operators to drill like crazy and the oligopoly that is the refiners will refine said oil and get it out in the system and we could be pumping it all over the world to supply europe that is trying to wean itself off of russia but also this will be a massive development of wind turbines and so forth and other ideas there it is a wall street journal section about how to use tides to create electric power it could be just a whole lot of different things that are going to create electricity into uh compensate for this decreasing or more expensive portion of oil use. And maybe that's the best thing for climate change possible is that oil prices rise tremendously. And then there's a natural or automatic incentive to build electronic infrastructure. And that would be great, right? Even though yeah. short run harm. No, I mean, you could say, is there, if there's one maybe green shoot that comes from this horrific tragic war is does it continue to spur the development for renewable resources of energy and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to watch and uh, maybe we can hold ourselves to talking about that in another 100 episodes if we can keep up our streak. But Don, it's been a pleasure doing this podcast with you and uh, I look forward to talking with you next week. And the next one for another two years at least. <laughs> we, that's right. We got to get to episode 200. <laughs> All right, Zach, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.